truly at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to what they're already calling episode 245 of Dogcast Radio, which is all about, well, I'd say it's all about dogs and people helping each other. Later, we'll be hearing from Fiona Airy about how her assistance dog, Verlin, trained by canine partners, helps her. I drop so many things because my fingers aren't very good. He'll pick all of those things up. And it can be from the smallest of drawing of pins to a large object like a walking stick. Wow. He can bring it to me. But before that, I'll be talking to Fernando Ramirez. He and his wife, Dana, operate Rancho Luna Lobos, a dog rescue and rehabilitation located in Park City, Utah. They are also a non-profit called Sledding for Hope. I love their attitude, and I hope you do too. On our ranch, we have this um, 55-acre sanctuary, as I like to call it. Mm -hmm. And recently, within the past 15 years or so, maybe even longer, there's been quite a surge in the um, northern breeds as far as, you know, people purchasing Siberian Huskies and Alaskan Malamutes. And then they... um, some people don't realize the type of maintenance that goes behind the breed. And and so more often than not, unfortunately, you find them in, in shelters and uh, or surrendered over. And so that's kind of where we come in. We, we sort of pluck them out of the shelters or we accept dogs that are surrendered by their owners onto our site. And and what we do here is is we try to figure out what the dog is telling us. So we don't consider ourselves like, quote, quote, dog whisperers we, we call ourselves dog listeners each dog much better yeah yeah they, they each have a story to tell and if you listen very quietly they, they'll tell you quite a story and the one thing i can't teach these guys is that drive and passion to want to run and pull a sled and mm-hmm. yeah i can't i can't coach passion but if they love to do it i can coach anything else um and so we do get a fair share amount of dogs that don't like to pull and if that's the case, that's totally fine. We keep them here. Hmm. Um, we train them uh, whether you, so they can succeed in a family setting. So when we find them the right home, whether it's in the next two weeks, I've held on to dogs for two, three, four years until they find the right home. And uh, we help them um, strive toward that better future. And oh, yeah. that's lovely. That's wonderful. And that's such a good message to put out because... I think a lot of the time we we think I want a dog that I can do agility with or I want a dog that will just sit on the sofa with me or I want a dog, you know, whatever it is. Sometimes I want a dog that will swim like my last dog swam, you know, or or I throw a ball for them and they'll swim. Lots of different expectations when we get a dog. And, you know, it's much better to get the dog and then go on the adventure that that dog wants to take you on because then you won't be disappointed and also you'll both be happy. And I think that's beautiful to let the dog find their own way. Uh, it, it's, uh, it is. It, 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 we, Dean and I, we set uh, goals and, and, and personal goals for every single one of our dogs. So we we care for about just under 80 dogs and yeah, and so every single dog has a name, has a purpose, and they have a voice here. And we're always trying to figure out where they want to be, you know, like, and like you mentioned, do, do they want to be on a couch with the family or do they want to be in the mountains running, playing in the snow, you know, part of the team? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess sometimes the dogs that will make a good sledding dog won't make perhaps such an easy 
pet dog and the other way around you know the, the pet dogs that are easygoing and like lots of quality couch time won't necessarily make you the best sled dog will they right exactly it's it's kind of a uh you know a hit or miss with these dogs and, and it's funny mm. here's a funny little piece of trivia more often than not, it's the purebred Siberian Huskies and Alaskan Malamutes that we see on TV in, in those beautiful movies, sled dog movies. Those are the type yeah. of dogs that typically don't like to run and pull sleds, which is funny. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't it, think that because you think they'd be bred to do it. Exactly. Yeah, because they look the part, right? Hollywood says like, oh, no, these are, these are the dogs, right? But which, in fact, is actually the uh, Siberian Husky mixes. So we call them Alaskan Huskies, where they're Siberian Huskies or maybe an Alaskan Malamute, but they're mixed with some other type of working dog. And, and so those dogs are, tend to be more of your high drive, you know, you know, crazy running um, sled dogs. Yeah, yeah, and because I know they they sometimes cross them with a pointer, don't they? Because the pointer is obviously like you know the English pointer that likes running and running and running. It is one hundred percent true. In fact, if you go to a dog sled race nowadays, um, you know I think a lot of people go in with the uh, preconceived notion that they are going to see some Alaskan Huskies and excuse me, some Alaskan Malamutes and Siberian Huskies. But in fact, they look like they're a bunch of hunting dogs, you know, bird dogs yes. that are out there running. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and in, in a common mix is the German Shorthair Pointer Husky mix, and something that we've seen more commonly as well is a Greyhound Husky mixes. Wow. Yeah, and 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 arguably, uh, Greyhounds have a higher red blood cell count than most other dogs, so they're able to actually process the oxygen more efficiently, and they can high, hold a high RPM for quite a bit longer. So when you mix that with a Nordic breed. You have this super athlete um, racing dog, so to speak. Yeah. 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 Well, that's really interesting because I know greyhounds are often kept in kennels as as a, a or have been um, often kept in kennels as a, a, a donation, you know, donor dog, blood donation dog. And I thought it was because of their placid nature. But if they've got lots of red blood cells, I, I guess they, they would be good donors, wouldn't they? Yeah, they do very well. And, and, and they're the sweetest dogs. The only thing is, they do require more maintenance in terms of, for example, um, when we're done with a run, Dane and I, and, and along with our staff, because we we need quite a bit of staff to uh, run this whole facility. So after every run, we're out there massaging every dog, um, doing range of motion. We're applying ointments to their feet. Uh, we have a massage. Yeah, has a lot of ointments for their muscles, so they're not sore. They have a doggy Gatorade. They have a doggy protein shake. So, yeah, these guys, I mean, I need to feed my uh, Greyhound Husky mixes about 10,000 calories a day, if you can believe that. Wow. Yes, it's it's a lot of food. And and if you take their weight ratio to the amount of calories they take, it's almost the equivalent of taking a, a human, a person that weighs roughly about 150 pounds and you feed them about, uh, I think it was like 40 to 45 hamburgers a day, which is insane. Wow. Yes. It, that's a huge amount, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Although there, you know, there, there are maybe some people who that, that sounds attractive to. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I wish I could eat that much and get away with it, but I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. So when, when the dogs come into you, what kind of 
life have they had before? Or, or, or can you not sort of generalize like that? That's actually a phenomenal question. And I, that's something I get asked um, quite a bit. Um, they come from all sorts of backgrounds. When Dana and I first started this project about 12 years ago, we went to all the uh, different shelters and we would pick out the Northern breeds that the, the animal shelters were having trouble with uh, in terms of uh, finding them homes to go home to. And, and uh, a lot of these guys came from abusive backgrounds. Um, sometimes, you know, and then all, I'd say other 50% where they came from loving homes, but they just, mm-hmm. the families couldn't handle that kind of, dog they couldn't handle that type of yes. pressure and routine and maintenance so and then the other little bit um we have dogs that are surrendered over to us right and so they they come from a good variety of backgrounds and so when we know that we're accepting a dog and we're going to give it the time dana and i will invest not just one week two weeks we'll invest like two or three years into this dog mm-hmm. making sure that we know how this dog will react in different situations. And if they thrive on the team, that's a form of therapy for the dog so that they can actually express themselves in an artistic way. Cause I don't want to change their personality, right? If, if there's a dog that comes in very high spirited, high strung, and they just want to run and they want to play, but they're destructive. Those dogs just need an avenue to express themselves in a non-destructive way. Yes. So that's, yeah. that's where the dog sledding comes into part and, and they're able to really run well and, and uh, kind of get their energy out. But, you know, you have some dogs that I had Goofy, for example, so brokenhearted. Um, when we adopted him, when he took him in, he was seven months old. He's a Timberwolf Malamute mix. Now, oh, wow. yeah, these, these wolf hybrids are becoming quite a bit of a problem um, in oh, terms mm-hmm. of people wanting to uh, buy them. Then again, you know, they're a whole different breed. They're, they're like not even yes. dogs, right? <laughs> so. mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, yes, they're gorgeous. They look gorgeous. But as you say, you're not buying a, a dog there, are you? Oh, no. You're no. buying potentially a lot of trouble. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, you're not buying a dog. And so it, I understand it could get frustrating. But with Goofy in particular, he was so mistreated. He actually had a fractured cheekbone when we picked him up. Oh my yeah, you know, and it was so sad. I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, it sounds rough. I'm sorry. Um, but it took it took me and Dana five years to get him to the point where he could trust people. And we were able to show him that there's good in the world. You know, although he did see darkness, there was there is good and and, and the light will always shine over the darkness. And yeah. even though you know, it took him five years, he only had a career of about three years of this of being a sled dog. And he, you know, was um, getting old. His joints were, we could tell he had some little bit of joint issues. So instead of, you know, continuing his sled career, we retired him early and he just became a a ranch dog Um, and loved life. He loved greeting all of our guests when he was terrified of men. He actually took a a liking to every, every gentleman that came through. And that was a huge positive. Yeah. You know, and I, I just lost in this last, January and that was. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I thank you. Yeah, that was a rough, a rough. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was rough. And but he taught me one thing, and 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 that thing is, you know, it truly doesn't matter where an individual starts in life, but what they make of their life and how they finish it out. Is that if that makes sense? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, as you say, horrible things happen to people as well as dogs, but it's how you then deal with that. And, and you know, it's sometimes dog or person, they'll need help to get right. past that and to work through it. And hey, thank goodness you were there for, for Goofy. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, and so satisfying to know that you took him from that very frightened, dark place to a place where he could, as you say, you know, see see people as people and not a threat. But, you know, I might get something nice here. Exactly. And that, that took a little while for him to kind of understand that. And, and But when he did, he was... He gave his famous goofy hugs is what we call him, where he'd literally walk up to everybody and he'd wrap his giant, big, wolfy a leg around their, around the, everyone's legs, you know, and give them the biggest hug. And he was just so sweet. Yeah. Oh, bless him. Bless him. So <laughs> when, it sounds, it sounds gorgeous. Um, so when the dogs are sledding, when they're pulling the sled, obviously that takes a lot of physical uh, energy. Is it a mental workout as well? It is. It's, it's a lot of, uh, you have to, when you're running a team and when you're deciding, you know, what dogs go well on, in what position, hmm. you always want to put a dog where they're going to thrive. So we never set them up to fail, so to speak. So if they, if they can only handle, you know, a two mile run with our guests, um, that's all they run is a little two mile run. And, and our tours are so much centered around education. So when people come here to uh, meet the dogs, it's it's a lot of hands-on, a lot of uh, presentation, a kennel tour, uh, playtime with the dogs. And then they get a short little like exhibition run to see, to just to show people what they can do. Mm-hmm. And everyone gets a thrill out of it. And, it, you know, with that, yeah, uh, you know, the dogs, we only run two time slots a day. So the dogs in total are running like four miles a day, which is yeah like yeah. nothing right yes. uh, so, yeah um it'd be a lot but, for me but yeah i can imagine for the dogs it's not that much yes yeah yeah the dogs you know most most breeds after they perform an activity or a trick you know it's customary to give them a treat or to give them a reward of some sort but with the sled dogs like running for them is honestly the reward they just they love it yeah. and yeah they love it so much even when i'm with my race team and if we're going through a tricky course and then we get back to the truck, you know, after that crazy run, you know, all of them will look back at me and like, oh, yeah, hey, dad, you're still on there. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my gosh, yeah, you guys took me for a ride of my life. Um, but they they absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so, I mean, clearly you've said that you don't force any dog to, you know, go down a path they don't want to go. So, that, and, you know, they, they find their own level that they're comfortable with but you you race professionally don't you so tell me about that yes yes racing professionally is something um that you always have to for me for example i always have to keep tabs and check on ourselves that we're never pushing the dogs beyond their limits and that it's something that they're able to handle at a pace and a distance that is comfortable for them and it, it is difficult to find, um, especially with a lot of our guys that are rescues, um, not all of them on the race team are rescues, but some of them. And to find a, a specific dog that can actually keep up with the race team is, is quite a task. Mm-hmm. But, you know, racing is something I've done since I was eight years old. And, wow. yeah, I, you know, I, 
the most famous dog sled race you'll hear of is the Iditarod, the 1,400 mm-hmm. mile race mm-hmm. across the state of Alaska. We don't do that or we don't run any long distance races. Our, our longest race is about 35 miles. And um, sometimes that can go through a, a span of three days or even seven days, just depending on the race. But it, it is very important to make sure that every dog is monitored very, very closely. And in the racing world, the standards in order to compete are out of this world. I mean, in a good way, yeah. the requirements, every musher have to follow, has to follow. They're so strict that I, I mean, I even have to collect urine samples from whatever dog they would tell me to collect urine sample from. And they'll test that. Yeah, they'll test for um, not only sport enhancing drugs, but uh, anti-inflammatories, um, different different things like that, supplements that aren't really um, appropriate for the sport. And if you're caught, I mean, you you can be banned for, uh, I think, a number of years or for life. They'll they'll mm-hmm. kick you out for. Yeah, it's it's very strict. Now, taking it on the other flip side of it, on the in the touring industry, there isn't very many regulations that help um, with certain standards with the touring industry, aside from uh, local county animal agencies where the animal control will come by and inspect, make sure every team is up to uh, code up to standard. And that's where um, they're able to get signed off on their commercial license or their rescue or whatever it is that they're doing. And aside from that, though, there isn't very much um, help. Now, granted, you know, there are a lot of mushers that are very knowledgeable and this is their professionals. They know what they're doing. Unfortunately, there are a few bad apples out there that that maybe don't look, you know, to the to the well-being of the dog as they should. I mean, their their intent and their intentions are really good, but maybe they're having a hard time financially where they can't support the dogs or you know, we, whatever it is that, and that, that's when things start to kind of go south a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So here in Utah with we, there's four other touring company or excuse me, three other touring companies here in the state of Utah, uh, primarily in the uh, park city region. So Dana and I, we have a, our, our nonprofit is sledding for hope. And that's mm-hmm. on the basis of educating the public and helping these rescue dogs and giving them a second chance at life. But, on the other end of the spectrum, we want to be able to promote more than what's required of us. We want to promote more of it, go above and beyond uh, ideal standards of what we see as should be beneficial for each kennel. And we're very lucky that when, when we called these other seasonal companies, they met with us. We met with every single one of them and they were so on board with this idea of going above and beyond with uh, different veterinarians that would come on site to each kennel, including my, including ourselves and really get an in-depth inspection on um, healthy dogs, you know, and these are world-class veterinarians that will be coming in and uh, officials that are well-versed in the dog sled world. They'll be coming in and, and inspecting each one of the kennels and, in helping to promote and, and help these other mushers, including myself on what a better world uh, or a better touring industry could be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's so good because 
I think when whatever sport activity business you're in with your dogs, when the the dream, the you know, the ambition outweighs the love of the dog, that's when you get the problem. So I mean to put the, the dogs first is that that's you can't ask more than that, can you? That's brilliant. And that's what we want to promote because you know, dog sledding isn't a gray light. Um, the sport is. And I think that the touring industry is becoming more the face of our sport. It honestly is versus racing. I think more people are able to get, uh, go on vacation and, you know, somewhere in a ski resort and uh, take a dog sled adventure and whatever they see there, that's going to leave that everlasting impression. So if they go there and, and they see like, wow, you know, these guys really went above and beyond. These dogs are so happy. They're so excited and show in showcasing what dog sledding really is, yeah, you know, that's just going to leave a, a longer um, um, impression, you know, more positive impression than what they maybe a lot of people come to us, for example, and they say, you know what, I came here with really low expectations, to be honest, because I didn't know what to expect. And we hear this every single tour oh. throughout the year. And they said, you've completely changed our mind and we love what you guys are doing. And this is amazing. And, and uh, I think other, you know, companies that are trying to do this as well, you know, in, in some sort, we've, you know, they tell us like, you guys should work together and kind of collaborate a little bit with ideas and, and make this the the positive light and outshine that gray light for the sport. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's, I mean, I know, I know nothing about dog sledding, but from what you've sort of been saying to me, I was thinking that when you do an activity with your dog, you you have to be a partnership, don't you? You have to be a team. And obviously you're working with a, a team of dogs. Um, and as you've said, you can't give them the enthusiasm to run. If they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't do it, would they? So you and your team of dogs, you've all got to work together, haven't you? Oh, my gosh. It, it is our relationship on the team with my dogs. Uh, is something that I can't really describe in words. There's nothing. And I, and I try to sp- explain this to my guests when, when I'm out racing in the middle of nowhere and you literally feel like you're the only human being alive on planet earth because of how desolate you are. You're relying so heavily on, on your kids to, or my dog, I call them the kids. Yes. You're relying so heavily on the kids to get you home. And there's yeah. such a connection and such a bond and I always tell my children as well, I say, where you guys, where your hands grip the sled and where the sled, the sled connects to the gang lines and where the gang lines connect to the dog's harnesses, you guys are like one body. Those, those gang lines are the veins of your body. And, and the way the musher and the dogs work together is, is almost even like telepathic, right? I mean, you guys just think so much alike that hardly any words need to be spoken. It's just such an art form that goes beyond just running dogs. It, it is, it is a painting. It is, it is a masterpiece that is in place at that very moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds amazing. It really does. It, it must be such a thrill. And, you know, I, I love the fact that you, you, you do the, the, um, the, the people can come in and, and have the experience. Um, the dogs are so, so much of your priority, but you do really well, don't you? Professionally. I mean, you race really, you know, you're, you're up there, aren't you? 
I'm I'm okay, you know. Go on, I'm play not... your own trumpet. Go on, you tell us how good you are. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I you know all the credit is to the dogs. I I tell Dana, I I just feel like a you know, I, I myself I run up the hills as much as I can, and and when we're done, I'm I think I'm more winded than my dogs are. <laughs> yes, yeah. But but it, it, I have to give it the credit to the dogs, and you know to to my wife and 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 my staff because I you know for one or two hour. Um, run that we're doing with the dogs it uh it requires another six hours of maintenance wow. with the dogs so we're yeah, yeah feeding them and, and all their i mean we even go as far as having a a canine chiropractor that comes and aligns all the dogs mm-hmm. and it, so it gets very tedious yeah and i think all those little one percenters eventually add up yeah for the big show and for, for the races yeah 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 but i mean next year you're you're going with with the American team, aren't you? And you're going to represent America in in Sweden in March. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. We yes. So we actually were supposed to run for Team USA for the Dryland version um, up in Bristol, Canada. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, with the pandemic and yeah. everything going on, we were unable to go. So um, the, we uh, I was talking to our main one of the main officials for team usa and she was telling me you know if you're interested in in going to sweden to represent team usa you know you're welcome to um but that is something that i'm i'm still contemplating although it would be a phenomenal experience i'm a little hesitant with the flight over there you know i don't know what kind of stress that's going to put my dogs in um yeah so i'm i'm it's a back and forth and it's like it's one of those questions I have to ask myself. Is it something I'm doing because I want to or something? You know what I mean? I like, do I want yeah. it more than the dogs? Yeah. 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 No, I, I know. <laughs> that's, a, that's such a lovely a- a- attitude as well. That is, you know, and I think that's when you when you do an activity, anybody that starts to do an activity more and more and you get into the training, there comes that point where you have to stop and think, hang on, am I doing this for me? Am I doing it for the dog or for us? Or and if it's just you, yeah, you, you've got to ask those questions. That's that's such a, a lovely attitude. And um, dog sledding used to be in the Olympics, is that right? You know, they did it for one um, one Olympic year. I think it was in nineteen thirty-two. Yes, nineteen thirty-two. Yeah. It was more of an exhibition run. All right. Okay. And yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. I mean, they had some very uh, a very stacked field with very well-known mushers. And after that, after the 1932 Olympic games, they, I think they were leaning toward, you know, Hey, let's put this in the winter Olympics. I think this will be great. But from what I understand and what I've read and also had the opportunity to talk to um, some people that know that uh, at a point in time and with the sport, they were telling me that they couldn't really justify feeding um so many dogs from different countries when, you know, world war two was going yes, on and yeah. they had trouble feeding. Yes. You know, and, and so that, that's kind of what so, sort of set the uh, idea on the back burner and it was never really brought back since, mm. but I know, I know they're trying, I know they're trying to see if it, if it will go to the Olympics, but I, I don't know what'll happen. You know, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Oh, that, would, that would be good though. And again, as, as long as everyone does it well, like you do, that would be uh, so exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so. Oh my gosh. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when people come to um, to the ranch, what can they experience there? What can they do? 
the ranch, um, you know, Dana and I have this philosophy that when they come, as soon as you pass by the gates and our driveway, all the negative um, energy, all that negative baggage that you feel like you're carrying just gets dropped at the gate. When you come here, it's a reset. And you live in, in such a way while they're here as the dogs do. You know, you, you're, you're welcomed with open arms. You are listened to and you will always have someone to work with you. And so in that, that plays a lot with even our summer campers. We get a lot of kids from all sorts of different backgrounds that come up and we want to basically teach them that it's okay to be yourself here because it's very welcomed. And we want to have you excel in that, whatever it is you want to be, whatever it is you want to do, we want you to excel. And that's the same idea we have with our tours as well. I, a lot of, we want our guests to leave here, not just saying, you know, Hey, that was a fun ride. We want our guests to leave here saying, Hey, you know what? Like I am so inspired right now. Like I need to chase my dreams. I really do. Yeah. Cause you know, after listening to, we have a blind dog, his name is Umberto mm. and he's gone through so many obstacles and so many struggles, but despite his physical disability where he can't see where he's going, we have been able to help him work his way up the dog sled line to where he's, he's leading our dog sled teams. Wow. And, and that, and that's the sort of thing that we want to promote here at our ranch is just that we want people to leave here very inspired. Mm-hmm. We want people to feel like they're a part of something and that when they go back home, whether it's just down the road or back to Florida, wherever um, we want them to feel like they they have a voice in, in, in their own life to chase their own dreams. So they want, we want them to feel inspired. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is amazing. I, I, you know, I, I just can't, I mean, I know dogs have stronger, their other senses. We humans are very visual. I know dogs have other senses that sort of, um, make up for the loss of the sight, but that is incredible. Yeah. We, we just love sharing what we do. And it's hard to, do. I always joke around with my wife, you know, I say, um, you know, I'm just a professional pooper scooper is really what I am, you know, but if I can connect the other pieces together and, and leave some other kids inspired, or hopefully say something positive into someone else's life, that'll help them change for the good. That, that for me is a big win. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and inspire them to do it in a, in a kind way. I mean, goodness knows we need more kindness in the world at the moment, but to, that you can achieve your dreams, but you can be kind along the way. Yeah. Oh yes. And it is so important to help everyone else, you know, along their way as well. And that's just sort of the mentality. My grandfather, um, it was such a, a great man. Um, I come from a long line of, of horsemen hmm. in Mexico where horses were, were life. I mean, they, they use their horses for everything. And, and my great grandfather, um, his approach to training horses was so different from everyone else in his community, in his village, even in the region. And it was so successful and that when he was asked to go and train um, horses at uh, for wealthy ranchers, he would travel two or three days on end to get just to get to their ranch um, by horseback. But when he would get there and he would help these horses, um, there would be a lot of people that would go walk up to him and ask, like, what is your secret? And he would honestly tell him. He would say, "It's I'm 
you have to be kind and you have to be patient. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you can't demand respect. You have to earn it in that sense, you know? And, and that, yeah, that's just something I've carried with me my whole life. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's lovely. I I really like the, the approach, the attitude. I love it. Love it. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say about the ranch or the dogs or anything? You know, I, yeah, the, the ranch is, is, is uh, an area where we're hoping in small steps in one way or another, we can make a positive impact on, on the sport and um, put it in a more positive light. And if we can work well together, as far as, you know, dog owners, um, dog trainers, and especially dog mushers, I think we can create that. Um, and just a quick little story. I was mostly really inspired by this gentleman. Um, he, he lives over in Ireland and, uh, he, his family background, uh, is, is quite impressive. They have actually lived on, um, this castle for 900 years. I think a little over, oh. And he's, you know, um, this gentleman, his name is Randall Plunkett, and he's a 21st baron of this castle. And what used to be forest around his his estate has, over the years, have become cattle land. And he was, how shall I say, so determined to bring back um, wildlife and uh, rewild his estate. So he, he uh, specifically... Uh, I don't want to say donated, but he specifically targeted 750 of his acres uh, to bring back some wildlife and to re- let it, uh, let the land rewild itself. And, and, and one of the models that he said is he said that his family has always helped, um, you know, wildlife or, or animal rights, things like that of that nature. And, but their main motto is make haste slowly. <laughs> right. And I, and I always thought that was such a, such a great, little metaphor because you know with what i do with what dana does in, in our industry this is something that yeah you know we have to make haste slowly right mm. we slowly build up for a stronger um industry if that makes sense yes. yeah absolutely um that's that's great where can people find out more about you online yes yeah, so, uh, so we're, our website is at lunalobos.com and we also have a Instagram page, uh, Rancho Luna Lobos. And then we're also on Facebook as well um, at Rancho Luna Lobos. So either one of those, um, our social media, we, we keep it pretty active and um, people are able to tag along and see what we're up to every day. Oh, if I am ever in Utah, I am calling in on Fernando and Dana and I may stay a long time because their ranch sounds like a wonderful place to be. We have the link to the Luna Lobos website and their socials at dogcastradio.com. Who knew that dog saliva can mend a broken heart? Jennifer Neal. Canine Partners is a registered charity that assists people with disabilities to enjoy a greater independence and quality of life through the provision of specially trained dogs, whose well-being is a key consideration. More than 1.2 million people in the UK use a wheelchair, and a significant number of those would benefit from a canine partner. The dogs are carefully matched to the applicant's needs and lifestyle, no matter how challenging. They are trained to help with everyday tasks such as opening and shutting doors, unloading the washing machine, picking up dropped items, pressing buttons and switches and getting help in an emergency. 
Fiona Airy from Kent, UK, was diagnosed with a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And as you'll hear, it had a devastating effect on her life, both personally and professionally. Then along came Verlin, and he worked his doggy magic. Here's Fiona to tell us more. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a connective tissue disorder. Mm. Um, in the early days, I came across as just a very bendy, double-jointed child, which was fantastic because um, I went into a early career with ballet and mm. went off to a boarding school for ballet dancers because I had a wonderful body that could be bent in any direction. Yeah. Um, and it was fantastic. And all we saw was, and all my family saw, was a, a young child who was, as they termed, double-jointed. Yeah. However, as I got older, I had more and more pains. Um, by 16, I was having regular um, appointments with a chiropractor to try and sort out the continual spine problems I was having. Mm. Um, and... Yeah. We did see an orthopaedic surgeon at one point who said it's possibly best that she stops dancing. Mm. Um, but nobody ever connected that the, con- the problems I was having was down to this bendiness, this sort of extreme range of movements that my body had. Yeah, yeah. When I was 23, I stepped off a pavement and I, pain went shooting up my spine. I couldn't walk. Mm taken to hospital and the doctor sort of looked at this ballet dancer with this bendy body and just said oh it must be muscle pain I said I know muscle pain I have been dancing all my life this is not muscle pain there is something significantly wrong yeah and it was having worked with um, physiotherapists and they said you need an MRI scan and after that it showed that my spine they said your spine is more like a 70 year old's mm. It's completely degenerated, and I had my first spine operation. Oh, my goodness. And even then, they said, oh, it's because you're very bendy. Mm. You know, you're the sort of person chosen to do ballet or gymnastics, and you really shouldn't do it to that level. And the spine operation worked. Things got better. But then by my late 30s, the problems were creeping back in, and now I had shoulder dislocations. I had the consistent spine problems, joint aches. And it was a GP who said, I think you need to go up to London to see a professor. And I think you've got a connective tissue disorder. Mm. And he was completely right. And for the first time in my life, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos. And something that says Marfan features as well, which is another connective tissue disorder. And it explained how a wide range of symptoms that I have from my short-sightedness, to the dislocating shoulder, to the spine problems, to my wrists popping out, to my fingers dropping things constantly, to the continual pain, and even to a mitral valve prolapse and some internal organ issues. Oh, my goodness. All down to the one condition. Yeah, yeah. Crikey, so, I mean, it really, really affected you quite drastically, didn't it? Absolutely, because... People don't join up all the dots. They see one thing, a spine problem, or they see one thing, a shoulder dislocation, or, you know, a mitral prolapse. It's only when an expert puts them all together and says, no, it all comes down to having um, a genetic mutation in your connective tissue, which means you just stretch. Everything stretches. Somebody explained it's like chewing gum. Mm. It's 
And like a rubber band that stretches and pulls back, all my connective tissue just stretches and remains lax. Wow. Yeah, that's a really good explanation for it. And, and it shows you how, how it affects you and how, how wrong, if you like, then the body goes. And it's, it's horrible. It's a shock for you when that happens, isn't it? That you, you relied on your body and then suddenly it lets you down in some way. And then you go, Oh my goodness, I didn't even know this was a thing. So, um, I mean, I imagine in some ways that the diagnosis may have been a relief because at least then hopefully you can get some help, can't you? Well, I think to begin with, I, I couldn't believe it because I'd been so physical mm. and the original spinal operation worked. I was convinced somebody must be able to fix me. Yeah. And my GP had said to me, you're going to have to grieve for the loss. And I was like, no, 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 I, I'll get better. And it took about three years of me believing somebody could fix me and everyone saying, we can't fix you. We can't put you back together again mm. for me to accept that this was the way life was going to be, and that was exceptionally difficult. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't want to believe it. Mm. And I, you know, to be told there's nothing anyone can do, you're going to have to li- to learn to live with this pain, to walk with a stick, uh, which I found humiliating. Yeah. I, I, f- I found the place I was in to be a humiliating place. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes you have... You would never think of someone else who used a stick or a wheelchair or crutches or whatever it happened to be in in any way. You wouldn't think any less of them in any way. But somehow you have a picture of yourself. And when you have to use, as you say, a a stick or a chair or whatever it is, that bashes your self-image so much that it's so difficult to accept, isn't it? It is, and unfortunately, the workplace I was in at the time had seen me go from a very fit, healthy person because I look perfectly fine. Like I say, I have a body that can do more than most people's bodies. Yeah. And I think some of my colleagues, um, and especially the leaders in the school at the time, couldn't understand or accept that this was happening. Mm. And I think the attitude was more like, oh, you know what, she's just, just needs to get on with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and trying to explain it, and even at that time I've had um, 16 electrodes sewn up into my spine, of my spinal column, just as a spinal cord stimulator to try and help break the pain messages. And mm. still it didn't, people couldn't, because you can't see pain. Yeah, yeah. And I... I was too humiliated to walk with a stick in that working environment because it wasn't an understanding one. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, I mean, I want to get to sort of Verlin and and the happy (laughs) bit, but, you know, it really had affected you and your loved ones and your ability to, to do your job, hadn't it? Oh, absolutely. I was shuffling around school. I couldn't walk down a corridor. I would always keep um, a wall to my left-hand side in case people bumped into me. Um, I was in, the con- in just in the constant pain. And if I dropped things, I was having to get them myself. We had um, certain door handles in the school, which were quite heavy and opening the doors. My wrists would constantly pop out. Mm-hmm. My sister, bless her, would come everywhere with me. I wouldn't go into town. I wouldn't go shopping without her. Yeah. Because she would just be there to sort of protect my body. She would always walk on one side with me. She would help me if I dropped things. 
and my confidence was dipping very low and she would be there just to give me that support. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, as as wonderful, as you say, as wonderful as that is of your sister, and thank goodness for her, it's still, when you accept help from another human being, it's different from accepting it from a dog, isn't it? And that brings us to Verlin. So tell me how Verlin came into your life. Um, I A friend of mine, uh, my best friend at the time, um, Jane, she'd phoned me up and she said, oh, you've got to turn on the television. There's a lady with your condition and she's got a dog that helps her. Mm. And I laughed and I turned to her and it was the one show. And it was a lovely partnership um, of Kate and Byron. Mm. And I watched it and she was on the phone at the same time. And it was a time when I was so low, I was beginning to think I'm not going to be able to carry on teaching. Somebody, mm. one of my bosses had even said, you might need to rethink your career. Oh. And I just thought I've worked so hard. Yeah. And I thought, I wonder if it could. <laughs> nothing ventured, nothing gained. Mm. But I need some help because the, the world, as I keep saying to people, the world was just getting smaller and smaller. Mm. And... I contacted Canine Partners, and they said, we'll come for an assessment, and you do all the medical forms, and you put everything in, and I went for an assessment day to work with some of the dogs to see if a dog could help me, and they agreed that a dog could, and put my name on the waiting list. Mm. And for the first time, there was this wonderful shining light. Yeah that maybe all was not lost. Maybe I, I did have a future and it wasn't going to be relying on my sister having to, to care for me. Yeah, yeah. Or my son, who was growing up and I never wanted him to have to be a carer. Yeah, yeah. It, it's one of those things, isn't it, that the person giving the help doesn't begrudge or, you know, resent at all, but the person receiving the help, you just think, oh my goodness, you know, you, you have things you need to go and do, I want to be independent, and it's just... It's a horrible situation all the way around, but with a dog, it seems to be completely different. And you and the dog are a team, and the dog obviously enjoys their role, and it's just completely different, isn't it? Oh, it is, and Vernon lives to work. If Vernon yeah. isn't working, he's got such a character. If Vernon isn't <laughs> working, he's quite happy. We all laugh. He'll sort of, at school, he'll go to a table and pick up a phone and bring it to me as if to say, oh, it might have been on the floor. It's like, no, it wasn't on the floor. <laughs> he's like, I haven't done anything. You haven't asked me. And then he just, he gets giddier and happier yeah. the more he works, the more he does something. Yeah. He lives to help. Bless him. So what, what kind of uh, tasks does he do for you? Um. So he'll... When I have a special attachments to handles, he'll open the door. He can also go and close the door. Mm -hmm. I drop so many things because my fingers aren't very good, including my walking stick, and he'll pick all of those things up. And it can be from the smallest of drawing of pins to a large object like a walking stick. Wow. He can bring it to me. Yeah. And being in the classroom, it was fantastic because whiteboard pens, for some unknown reason, yes. just wouldn't stay in my hands. The amount of times they, they went flying around the class, and he would always run off and pick them up, which the children just thought was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. We always had the tidiest classroom in the school because he would pick up anything that was dropped by me, the children, it would all come to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. He walks on my left-hand side, so he protects me from being bumped. Mm. 
he's learnt amazingly to sense when my pain levels are too high. So I have to pace myself and mm. sort of change position, stand, wiggle a little bit, sit back down, move about. And he knows when I've sat for too long, well, especially if I'm standing, even for a short period of time standing, and he'll push me as if to say, too much pain, now move. Yeah. And if I don't, he now jumps up and he sits his front paws on my laps and sort of puts that weight down as if to say, enough with the pain now, mum. You it, need to, to get this sorted. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I guess taking that advice from a dog is completely different from a person saying, you need to rest now. It's, it's much easier to take that advice from a dog, I imagine. Oh, definitely. And because he's so physical with it. Yeah. It's that because I try to explain to people that dealing with the pain, it's constant, it never goes away. So it's like background noise or white noise from a radio. And when it's high levels of pain, it's almost like high levels of white noise. Yeah. And trying to work, trying to have conversations, trying to teach and trying to hold the white noise back can be quite overwhelming and when you've got a labrador who suddenly jumps on your lap and sort of goes and calm (laughs) it makes you stop put the white noise to one side or actually to move about or even to explain to people and say i'm really sorry i'm actually in quite a bit of pain i just need to and it he sort of identifies that and gives me the opportunity to to manage the situation that's what it's about is pain management and He's definitely chief of my pain management team. Yeah, bless him. Amazing, amazing. And I mean, when you, you've talked about teaching. You're a head teacher, aren't you? I am now from being told. Um, I was actually in a meeting and I was told, with all your conditions and everything, I'm surprised you even get up and come into work every mm. day. Oh, um, my goodness. Yes. I moved to a school that was phenomenally supportive and said, we see you as the outstanding teacher that you are and not as a disabled person or any disability. And as long as you do your job, we're fine and we'll support you. Yeah. And that school supported me phenomenally. Wonderful. They welcomed Vernon with open arms. And yes, he's seen my career go from classroom teacher to deputy head and now head teacher. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. And I mean, talking about your colleagues, because one of the things... When I'm around someone with a with an assistance dog, I have to make myself stand back and think, right, they do this all the time. They live, you know, independently. They have this dog that does things for them. Because your instinct, well, my instinct is constantly to go, can I help? Can I do this? Can I fetch this? Can I do this? So it must allow them to relax and go, no, you can cope. You've got Verlin. You can do this and I can just get on with, with me. You know, I can do me. You can do you. It must free them up as well, you know, well, mustn't it? Oh, Definitely. I mean, my son is now grown up and I don't think he ever looked back and worried about me because yeah. he knew Vernon was there. My sister is completely delighted um, and can be relaxed. And I think she's once said that when we go shopping now, she's not there as a support to me. She's there as my sister for us to have a laugh and a giggle, yeah. um, you know, a slice of cake with each other as sisters <laughs> yeah. do. We've gone up to London together and we go you know, as sisters and Vernon as part of the team, mm. but she's not my support. And that's really important for both of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. As you say, it gives that normality back. I mean, another aspect I, I love about this, this is so so positive, is 
your your pupils get to see your dog and you in action and it kind of you know it normalizes the fact that people with disabilities can or disabled people however people want to sort of term that 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 you, you can carry out a job you can be a, absolutely as valid a part of, of society as anybody can there there's no no limits are there I think that's hugely important and I wish there were more sort of visibly disabled um, teachers, leaders within schools mm. and because that's the whole thing for children as well to know that in society and it's that um, social definition of disability it's not the person who is disabled it's it can be the environment that's disabling and you adapt that mm-hmm. you are, it, you can achieve everything and that's what we say in school a big part of our um, special educational needs provision is that we adapt the curriculum so all children can access it all children can um, fulfill their full potential and the same should be for all teachers and all members of society we adapt so that everyone fulfills their full potential and with their as examples. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, obviously, it's it's a big temptation for Verlin, I would imagine, as as the Labrador, to want to go and interact with, with the children. He's got a job to do. Does he get to interact with the children and, and how do they uh, regard him? Canine partners train their dogs so well mm-hmm. that... Verlin knows he's in work mode and he will not bat an eyelash unless somebody else starts engaging with him. And children are so well behaved, Mm. it's the adults who cause the trouble. (laughs) Because I always go, I know I shouldn't, but he's so gorgeous. Yeah. And you have to say to them, no, you shouldn't. Yeah. But with the children, especially at lunchtime, I always take Vernon for a walk around the field. And it's, I, I said the other day, Vernon must feel like one of the Beatles because they see him and before we know it, there are just throngs and crowds of children. They've all learned. They say, please, can we give Vernon a stroke? And before I know it, and I've said yes, he's on the floor, he's rolled over and there's about 30 children, 60, you know, 60 hands all stroking him and he's the happiest dog known to mankind. <laughs> yes, Labrador heaven, isn't it, that? <laughs> Oh, he's sort of like his adoring fans. He is, I've, you know, he is loved beyond belief by staff, by children. I've even had an Ofsted inspector come into my class once and got completely sidetracked by the dog and was under the table <laughs> giving him cuddles. <laughs> oh, wow. Now there's an opening for assistance dogs. Ofsted distraction. I like that. <laughs> well, I did actually have to pull them into line. I said, excuse me, we're not supposed to be distracting my dog. <laughs> Oh, bless. The, the magic of dogs is amazing. Just incredible. Thank you ever so much. That's been wonderful. Is there anything else that you would like to say, either about Verlin or, or the, the Ellers Downloss or, or Canine Partners, anything? I just think, I mean, I, I can't thank Canine Partners enough for the gift that they've given in sort of giving me my life back. And it's not just, you know, sort of the advanced trainers, in canine partners who you see working with the dogs. There's an army of people behind that. Verlin's puppy parents who took him at eight weeks old and trained him till he was 13 months have adopted me as a human and visit me every school holidays to make sure I'm fine and Verlin's fine. Oh, bless. Um, the, uh, the, 
the foster carers at the weekend, all the people, the people in the office, the aftercare workers, it's a phenomenal team that put looking after, you know, strangers, other humans first and making sure their lives are, you know, sort of open for the future. That we, you know, opening doors for independence, it opens so much more that it's a fantastic, phenomenal charity. So I can't thank them, you know, you know. Yeah. And of course, Berlin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bless him. Give him a fuss from me. If that's allowed, give him a fuss from me. <laughs> Oh, definitely. Curled up under a blanket. He's a very spoiled dog when he's not working. Absolutely. I mean, having said that, assistance dogs do have a wonderful life, don't they? Because some people listening to this might think, oh, it's horrible making a dog work. But it's not like that for a dog, is it? They don't want nothing. They don't want to sort of just veg out on the the sofa all the time. They they flourish having a job, don't they? He absolutely loves it. He's constantly with um companions he's constantly getting told he's a good boy kisses tummy tickles yeah he's get his proper walks in the day out in the fields running around being a silly dog bouncing on the sofa <laughs> like tigger so he's everything a dog could be and he gets to work he gets to keep his mind busy yeah so yeah. i think if you asked bernard he'd possibly say he has the best job in the world i think he'd say that too Thanks to Fiona for sharing all that with us and thank goodness for assistance dogs, the people who train them and the people who socialise them as puppies and when necessary, adopt them for retirement. You can find out more at caninepartners.org.uk which we have a link to at dogcastradio.com. I love to celebrate what's great about dogs and indeed what's great about people because it's so easy to get bogged down in the negative aspects of life at the moment but the good is out there all around us if we try to see it. Some dogs help us, some dogs need our help and that's a fluid situation which can change according to many factors but isn't that the joy of a relationship which benefits both parties? Give and take, love and support when you most need it. And that's why the relationship between humans and dogs has endured for thousands of years and will go on as long as both species exist. Dogcast Radio hasn't been around quite that long, but we have been going since 2005. So there are lots of podcasts at our website, dogcastradio.com, and we'll keep adding to them. But for now, until next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121 288 from the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 44121-288-0922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident DogCastRadio. That's all one word, DogCastRadio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. 
All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. No, it's not Jenny because she's lost her voice, so it's me, Julie, again. Here we go. When does a dog go moo? When it's learning a new language. <laughs>